0: On the Empire Podcast this week, he has an army, he doesn't like hulks, and he's officially the second sexiest man in the world right now. Yes, Tom Hiddleston is here. We also have Marvel mastermind Kevin Feige and Thor the Dark World director Alan Taylor here to tell us all about Norse gods and that film critic among film critics, Mark Kermode, to talk about his new book. That's in addition to all the usual news, reviews, and craziness you've come to expect from the only movie podcast that thinks they really should have got Leonard Nimoy to sing about hammers on the Thor soundtrack. Hello, Pod. I'm Helen Hara and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Joining me this week are the three Empire writers who came last in this morning's Parcheesi tournament. First up is our resident art house guru, a man who will never watch EastEnders or Corrie when there's Eisenstein and Corrieda to watch. It's Phil DeSemlin. Semelin. Hola. Uh, next up is someone who's moving house this weekend, which is a real shame because we all wanted to help him move. But we have prior commitments that day, uh, but both both days, or all of the days. It's Ali Plum. Hello. Uh, finally, uh, let me introduce the great and powerful James, who rules the online team with a combination of wit, skill and liberal threats with the many swords he keeps around his desk. Hello.
1: Gordon Dagger.
0: Um, you've been watching Vikings, Yes, that's,
1: that is indeed Old Norse <laughs> for good day, which has nothing to do with Thor, but just for the fact that I have indeed been catching up with the History Channel's excellent Viking series.
0: Okay, so this is a recommendation from you?
1: It is. I'm modelling my management team now on Ragnar Lothbrok. It's a busman's holiday, for so you, isn't it, really? A little bit. Well, you know, I spent a lot of my weekends, you know, pillaging and, and, and rampaging around the countryside with an axe, so, okay. you know, good times.
0: This is... I'm suddenly feeling a little bit insecure. Anyway, uh, this week's Empire podcast is brought to you again by Beyond Two Souls, the new PS3 game from Quantic Dream, a.k.a. the guys who brought you the award-winning Heavy Rain back in 2010. If you're looking for the movie connection, of course, Beyond Two Souls stars Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe, proper movie stars. And for more details on the game, you can keep your ears peeled at the end of the podcast, where the dulcet tones of Ali Plum will tell you much, much more. Now we had a competition last week to win two copies of the game and the winners are Pete Wimblet and Dan Blackburn. So congratulations to both of you. You correctly said that the answer Kitty Pride's sort of uh, name in the X-Men series was Shadowcat, most of the time at least. Uh, this week's competition is also to win one of two copies of Beyond Two Souls and the ridiculously easy question is this. Which Spider-Man villain did Willem Dafoe play? Yes.
1: Was it Shadow Cat?
0: It was not Shadow Cat, but very good guess. I mean, at least it's the right, you know, comic book universe. Uh, to stand a chance of winning, of course, you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com and make sure to include all your details in the email. All week, you've been lobbing questions at us like Paul Bettany in Wimbledon, only mostly less ginger. So let's start with those. At Mark Burridge, who I believe is a returning questioner, asks Which film character's job? do you most wish you had?
2: I would love to have the job that Ford Prefect has, uh, working for <laughs> Megadodo publications. He, okay, gets trapped on a mostly harmless planet for a few too many years, but the idea of just wandering around with a towel, making friends and enemies with a bunch of different people, just giving them reviews, I think there's something Empirey in that. Yeah. And uh, I guess Mostef is a very cool cat.
0: So just to be clear, we're talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy there. For anybody who, and you are appalling doesn't immediately recognise that.
2: Quite so. It's also slightly
1: appalling that you said most deaf and didn't refer, of course, to the original television production. Yeah, but this is a film podcast, so... Still, Ali, it's all about legacy. I appreciate you're only about
3: 16, but What film character's job would you most want to have? Plus, it's most deaf.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Phil. Sorry. Before we get arguing, go ahead. Come on
3: there, Phil, what's yours? I'd like to be a a masterless ronin born during the Japanese countryside. You're not entirely dissimilar. A
0: Yojimbo-like character yeah, I've learned a lot from you. But a lot of the jobs that I would really like in movies, I'm pretty sure I'm not capable of doing. You know, I mean, I'd like to be Black Widow, but I'm also pretty sure I can't tumble as well as she does. Um, so, you know, that, that rules out like a whole host of stuff. Like uh, Marilyn Monroe's job or Jane Russell's in *Gentlemen Fair Blondes, you know, just not that good a performer. It's never going to happen. So it's, it's a bit of a shame. What I actually decided I was probably qualified for is being an Oompa Loompa. I'm a bit tall, <laughs> but I do like chocolate. You
1: are too tall.
0: Yeah, but chocolate. You make may you make amazing cakes as well. Hmm. So what waitress?
3: No, no. I was thinking about um, who is it in Stranger Than Fiction? Oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's Maggie character. Gyllenhaal's cake shop. Plus, you're you know a trained barrister. There must be some movie lawyers that you could. Emulate. I could be
0: Demi Moore in a few Good Men. That would be all right. Perfect. Yeah, then um, I'd be like Aaron Sorkin witty.
1: I'd quite like to be a pre-crime cop because then <laughs> I could I could exact retribution on you all before you actually did things that annoyed me. And I think that would be quite fun. But if I'm honest, I think the best job has to be Bruce Willis's job in Armageddon. Simply because he's a deep sea driller that the government thought would be more expedient to train as an astronaut than to, I don't know, train an astronaut to use a drill (laughs) so clearly an exceptionally talented man well in Um, fairness
0: I mean come on astronauts (laughs) are notoriously you know dim bulbs who are very hard to teach
1: apparently (laughs) apparently there's no way of
3: teaching an astronaut to drill so that's a good point I hadn't thought that what about Salvatore in Cinema Paradiso
0: just sort of watches
3: movies all day
0: that's a good job that'd be good OK, well, those are a, a few career options if, if, you know, Empire ever falls through. Let's move on. At JC King of the Mods asks, I'm worried that Days of Future Past will be a letdown because the trailer is so awesome. What were the biggest trailer letdowns?
2: Most recently, mine was Prometheus because by the final trailer... I remember there was a trailer that came out on Saturday, and I remember waking up on Saturday morning, seeing it, and immediately writing up a news story for the website, because I was so excited about it. And in retrospect, I get I just feel so frustrated. My memories of it are going through Liverpool Street Station, and they had those kind of mini teasers of, like, 40 seconds that they repeat. And having watched the film, it was every single key beat. You could see the whole film in that 40 seconds. And there should be something that isn't in the trailer. And there wasn't. <laughs> and Ridley Scott has said since... Everything to do with the space donut rolling down, that was meant to be a big, huge reveal. And he had no intention of having that in the trailer. And yet there it was. So watching the film, I was expecting anything but that. And there were a couple of bits, like the bigger monsters that we don't necessarily see. So I suppose there's that. But really, I was gutted.
0: Mm. They literally had the final frame of the film in that trailer, which is a pet hate of mine. I think you shouldn't ever have it. Even if it's not strictly a spoiler out of context, you're still kind of part of you is waiting for that shot which kind of annoys me.
2: Well, you have that with The Grey. We've talked Indeed, about this a yeah, couple of that times. yeah, we have. I just, I, yeah, that, that
1: just makes me so cross, that did. I went into that film, for anyone who hasn't seen The Grey, I apologise, but I went into that film just thinking, Wolf Puncher! Do you know what I mean? And then I waited all the way through the film and I thought, is this one of these situations which does happen, mm. where they have taken a scene and for reasons known only to themselves, cut it out of the movie? But no, it's just the end of the film. <laughs> oh no, sorry, we get a poem afterwards.
3: <laughs> I haven't seen this film Wolf Puncher Wolf Puncher yeah, They bit... should have called it Wolf Puncher They should have called it Wolf I would have Puncher. seen that film The sequel to Community's Kick Puncher I liked very much the trailer for Where the Wild Things Are I'm not saying that it's a bad film at all It's mm-hmm. a good film It's just not quite the amazing film That the trailer kind of made me feel it might be With the arcade fire track over the top And it's just, it was really uplifting and amazing. I'm going to say also Tropic Thunder. That trailer made me laugh a lot and the film sort of didn't. Oh.
1: That had a lot of the good gags in the trailer. It had all again. of the good gags. In it, it happens more comedies, I think, where a lot of the really good gags make it into the trailer and then it's not a great
3: deal Well, I mean, it, for film. me, it sort of misled the film because it made it seem like a straight up sort of fast comedy. Mm. And it wasn't that really, was it? Mm. It was sort of half a comedy, half an action movie. Yeah. Um.
0: I'm going to go classic with this, uh, classic-ish, and say The Matrix Revolutions. Uh, is still the one that that kind of gets me. It made me believe again, even though I'd seen Reloaded. I honestly thought, right, they're bringing it back. They've got it again. This trailer is incredible. This is going to be amazing. And then I saw The Matrix Revolutions. So that, for me, is the biggest single letdown in my history.
1: See, I'd, I'd actually have said The Matrix Reloaded more than that because I'd already been I'd been hurt before by the time I came to Revolutions and so they couldn't they couldn't hurt me as deeply again the thing I had with Revolutions though was that all I really care about is it's called the bloody Matrix I want to see the Matrix and there was all of five minutes of Matrix in the third one Uh, but I'm digressing yeah no because you saw the trailer for Reloaded and it had the burly brawl it had all this you had tons of Agent Smith it just looked like the best film ever, uh, and it wasn't, I mean, and, and a lot of people I'm sure will level this exact same thing uh, against the Phantom Menace trailer, which was one of the most watched trailers ever, and it still gives me goosebumps, it's just the sound of the, the, the droid army tanks coming over the hill, you know, the music, everything and then the reveal of Darth Maul at the end of the tra- I mean, it looks absolutely unbelievable, and I've I've long been a, a, a bit of a sort of defender of the Phantom Menace, until I saw it again in 3D, it, it definitely doesn't live up up to the promise of that trailer. But what what I was actually going to choose as my particular choice was from 1992, a film called Free Jack. Uh, Emilio Estevez, Anthony Hopkins... Mick Jagger. Reasons, and Mick Jagger, yes. Uh, and it basically it's a film about uh, a racing car driver who gets ripped out of time and transported to the future where his body is going to be used for Anthony Hopkins to occupy. The plot's kind of incidental. But the trailer made it look so much fun and I so looked forward to seeing that. And then I
2: saw it. Transformers 2. Transformers 1 I did not like. But the second one I went there's a lot of stuff going on here and this looks cool and the music was cool and I thought well you well okay right, yeah but yeah action movies can get away with it so much more comedies yes they use all the gags but action movies can just stick on all the beats and you go well I want to see that I mean in your head you go I don't care about plot, character
3: development mm. anything else Michael Bay does do that's sort of his format isn't it he gives anything good below four, four and a half minutes he's amazing even the Pearl Harbor trailer is pretty cool no dialogue in it that out I like Pearl Harbor
0: well, at least there's one. Okay, uh, and finally today, at Sarah K 1288 asks, what are your favourite early Hitchcock films?
3: How early? Like his sort of Super 8 phase? Well, the BFI is in the process of restoring all the silent they films. Are. And I was uh, I highly recommend trying to track down the restored The Lodger, which I saw with, with um, the new Nitin Sawney score with him live. Live conducting? How could you not live conduct? He was conducting it at the Barbican. It was fantastic. And a really, really good film, The Lodger. as okay. a silent movie. The first sort of Jack the Rippery kind of film incarnation. And a lot of the early, a lot of the Hitchcock grammar, I guess, was established then. You know, The Wrong Man and the the romance and the the, the suspense and the cameos, all those things are there. Um, I haven't seen a lot of his other silent films, I'll be honest. It's only when he gets to the sort of 30s and he starts making. You know, the the spy spy period, The Lady Vanishes and 39 Steps. I love those films very much.
2: We talked about Lifeboat the other day. I would include, for early Hitchcock, I'd just say pre-America, is what I'd say, not including Frenzy at the end. But I would mention, in addition to 39 Steps and... um, the lady vanishes. Uh, I'd mentioned The Man Who Knew Too Much because obviously he remade that himself yeah. uh, in colour decades later. So it's fascinating to see how they match up and where where things have changed.
3: In the original version, there is no singing, <laughs> uh, which is an important difference. Hitchcock obviously remade his own films more than once, didn't he? I mean, the is it Saboteur that was basically a loose remake of The 39 Steps in America? Um, again, the Germans were the bad guys, but it was kind of the same idea. Yeah. But he always brought something fresh to everything he did, which is... A lesson I think.
0: I was going to cheat and say Rebecca which I know is like his first film in America but it still doesn't feel American so it's kind of okay It's
2: very good and we could just talk about Hitchcock all day but i just say if you haven't seen Notorious, watch Notorious. Then watch Mission Impossible 2 (laughs) Uh, and you'll see some differences
0: Okay well thank you very much for your questions as ever you can get in touch with us we are on Twitter at Empire Magazine and you need to use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't spot it because we're so popular also we're on Facebook also Empire Magazine or you can of course email us podcast at empireonline.com Alright time for our first interview Uh, Mark Komode is universally respected among his fellow film critics for his unending love of The Exorcist his gravity defying Quiff and his marvellous head-banging video reviews of the Transformers sequels uh, with his new book Uh, Hatchet Job, Love Movies, Hate Critics, now out. We invited him in to discuss his approach to film with Ali.
2: Very simple question to begin with. Yes. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, Mark Kermode and I'm a film critic. You summed yourself up pretty succinctly there, but judging from the book that we're here to talk about, Hatchet Job, it's not just a case of being film critic and that's it. You're on Twitter, you have your own radio show, obviously, and a whole variety of other Kermodean... Outlets. Would you say you're just a film critic?
4: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use the word just because. I mean, one of the things that I was writing about with the book was was that whole question of how how is it how have we got to the state that being a film critic is like just a film critic? There is a really weird sort of idea afoot now, which is that being a professional film critic is no longer a kind of valid area of employment. That somehow it's you know, you know who needs professional film critics now in the age of uh, of the internet and Twitter. You know, everyone's a film critic. So it's like saying you're saying you're a film critic is like saying you're somebody who walks the street. It's not it's not a profession. It's just something you happen to do. And one of the things I was trying to write about in the book was to say that you know, despite the the arrival of the internet, which in many ways has has, has changed changed things for everybody. You know, myself included. I've been very lucky with uh, the internet. Now everything I write ends up online. You know, Twitter is a great way of alerting people to new reviews. I, I work for. Radio 5, and we do a podcast, as you do here. And, of course, that's entirely disseminated through the Internet. So I'm not in any way complaining about the Internet. It's a great thing and wonderful. But there has been this idea, which is, okay, in the age of the Internet in which everyone's a critic, who needs professional film critics? And all I was trying to argue is, well, the medium may have changed, but the medium is not the message. Essential rules of proper film criticism, and I use that phrase, you know, I know, I know how much it gets people's backs up. You know, like, proper film criticism, you sound like a snob, but to me, proper film criticism is doing it as a job, as a craft, as a trade. And I would... Look, for example, to people like Kim Newman, who, of course, you know, has always been a mainstay of Empire. When I first started writing for Time Out, it was one of the people, you know, Kim Newman, Nigel Floyd, Alan Jones, who took me under their wings and tried to teach me the trade. I mean, I kind of apprenticed with them. And he still, for me, embodies what it is that proper film criticism is. It means you do it day in, day out. You sift through the good and the bad. You develop your skills, your critical skills. You learn how to explain what a movie is, where a movie comes from, what other films it relates to. You have, a hopefully, a wide-ranging uh, background knowledge. I mean, as Kim does, I mean as Philip French does, kind of encyclopedic body of knowledge. So you can say, well, if you like this film... You may want to like this other film, you may want to look at this, it's a remake of this, it refers to this, it draws from that, which you can only do by literally just spending day after day watching movies. And then at the end of the day, in the case of somebody like Kim or in the case of somebody like Philip or you know previously Roger Ebert, you'd write about this in a way which was intelligent and informative and entertaining. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is proper film criticism. It doesn't matter whether you're doing it on the internet or whether you're doing it in print or whether you're doing it on the radio. What matters is that you're doing it properly. And what I was trying to say in the book was proper film criticism still exists. It is not the same as the white noise Mm. of Twitter. It is not the same as the white noise of everybody simply declaring their opinions on internet forums. It's not that everyone's opinion isn't valid, fine, everyone is entitled to their opinion. Opinions are like arseholes, everyone's got them, everyone thinks that theirs is the only one that doesn't stink. But what I want to know if I'm reading a film critic or listening to a film critic is, who are you, where are you coming from, what have you seen, and what have you got invested in that opinion? That's the other thing I think is really important, because only if a critic has something to lose does their opinion to me become valid. And whether that something is their reputation, their job their critical standing, that, to me, is a kind of a a mark of integrity. You know, Philip French had nothing but integrity, and the reason was because he was a professional film critic doing the job, and he saw it as a job, as did Roger Ebert, for 50 years and more.
2: There's a big thing in the Empire office this week, and that was Breaking Bad, and that's a TV show, huge deal for us. I
4: really wanted your thoughts on it. I'm not going to ask you now. No, well, I'll tell you my thoughts on it. They are, I haven't seen it. And believe me, this comes up more and more. I mean, some time ago, when I was, you know, younger and more foolish, I kind of said, OK, I'm not going to watch television because I, television is somehow inferior. And I, I, it was obsessive at one point. I actually had pulled the aerial socket out the wall so it wasn't possible to receive television, which was a foolhardy thing to do. But hey, I was young and it was, you know, different time. Um, then some years ago, The Observer said to me, look, we want you to write a piece in which you compare the blockbusters that are out this summer with some of the stuff that's been on television. They gave me a load of box sets of stuff, and I watched it, and I came to the conclusion that, yeah, you know what? The argument that television is worse than film is nonsense. In fact, there is every evidence that what's happening in television is in many ways more adventurous, more cutting-edge than what's happening in cinema. The problem, however, is this. At the moment, there is something between 10, 12, 14 films released every week. As a film critic, what I want to do is to see as many films as possible because I think it's part of the job to see everything or at least as much of everything as you possibly can. Somebody gave me a box set of Breaking Bad. That's brilliant. I don't have 26 hours. The point is, it's not that I have anything against television at all, and I'm perfectly willing and ready to believe that Breaking Bad is brilliant because so many people I admire and respect have told me so. I just don't have time in the same way that I don't have time to go to museums and I don't have time. Honestly, what what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do film criticism. Now, I also understand, incidentally, that there is a big argument, which is, well, you actually have to understand television in order to understand movies. And if I can find the hours in the day... Then I'll try, but you know, it it is simply a time thing. There there are so many movies coming out at the moment, and it's like, okay, well, something's got to give, and what's it going to be? I'm just one man. No, it's not. I'm just one man. It's just, just that you know, there's only there is literally only so only so much time. I mean, again, we'll come back to Kim Newman. I do sometimes look at Kim and think, when do you eat? You know, you just wrote a novel and you revised Nightmare Movies and you went to Fright Fest and you saw this and now you're having a conversation with me about a TV show. When did, when did this happen? You know, I mean, I've, I've never seen Kim Asleep. It would be a great day in my
2: life if I could go up to Kim and say, Kim, have you seen this f-? Yeah, no, no, I haven't. No, I haven't. No, exactly. Right. But what, that isn't going to happen. One of these days, it would have to be truly, truly terrible. But even then, The comedy Does For Us in The Mag is about truly terrible films. But anyway, I was going to say, opening chapter, the prologue, you know how to introduce a book to get people in. Oh, it well, thank is you. a list of some of the best barbs delivered by actors, actresses, directors, produces everything it's just all in there and obviously critics a couple of my favourites are uh, Judith Crist saying all agony no ecstasy yeah. all that kind of stuff were there any after you'd finished the book where people had come up to you and said you know what this one's a critical oh
4: constantly but then that's, that is absolutely in the nature of film criticism isn't it it's like it is that constantly oh you didn't do that and you didn't do that and somebody else said this and it's an ongoing th- I mean it's funny because I sort of said to um, I asked uh, people in the, the Kermode Uncut blog you know I said you know, give me suggestions of, of the greatest put downs and of course, and that's still flowing in now. What that demonstrates, interestingly enough, is that people remember the put downs. People remember the the really sort of the the, the savage offhand, mm. you know, the dismissals, the me no likers. That's the kind of thing that people that, that sticks with people. And it's an interesting question about why that's the case, because you know you can praise movies as much as you want. You can say this film is great and this film is brilliant and a lot and and then. Everyone goes, yeah, but, you know, what was really funny it was when you really kicked the living hell out of, um, you know, out of uh, Sex in the City or something like that. And the, the question is, why? Why do you remember that? And I'd be, I was sort of resting away with this for a long time. It is certainly true. If you're a critic, the way to make your name is is the you know the really well. I mean, my favourite one was that was you know Roger Ebert talking about the Brown Bunny, in which he said, you know, I had a colonoscopy once. They let me watch it on television, and it was better than the Brown Bunny, which I you know I just thought was it was it was great because he does all that thing about you know the extended you know Freddie got fingered isn't it doesn't scrape the bottom of the barrel. It isn't the bottom of the barrel. It, it doesn't deserve to be mentioned in the same sentence as barrels. You know there was all that sort of stuff, and he had a he had a a beautiful way of doing that Peter Bradshaw of course did that great review of uh, Sex Lives of the Potato Men in which he said it raises the question for the British film industry of whether to put whether to put the gun to our temples or in our mouths for a cleaner kill and you know and, and you know I quoted the one from Empire about Battleship Miss which was you know boom tish and then, we all wish we'd done it and then John Norton who said of uh, the postman. He described it as post-apocalyptic. Pat. We, I mean, these are just lovely phrases. My, my favourite of all of them was Forrest Gump on a tractor, which was David Cox. It wasn't written in print. He said it as the lights went down on um, on the straight story, and it just killed the movie stone dead for me. Why do I remember all that stuff? Or somebody, if somebody says to me, you know, can you remember um, Philip French's defence of Heaven's Gate? Probably, but I couldn't quote it to you. Mm. You know, why not? Well, because it's the criticisms that stick. And incidentally, on the other side of that. I know because I've written, you know, a few books and I've had good reviews and I've had bad reviews. Can I remember the good ones? Nope, not at all. Can I remember the bad reviews? Yep, pretty much word perfect. I can remember immediately that one of the first reviews I got of It's Only a Movie, which was an autobiography, or at least it was an autobiographical account of being a film critic, the review in The Telegraph said, the problem with this book is it's all about Mark Kermode. To which, it's, it's a, what, it, which bit of the word autobiography do you not understand? What do you want it to be about? Proust? I mean, it's. I can't write it about anyone else, but you know, and and for four years I've been chewing over that phrase. Meanwhile, loads of other very nice things. Empire wrote a very nice review. Can't remember a word of it. Can't remember a word of what you said. You were nice, four stars, lovely. So it's gone in in an instant. It's gone.
2: Ah, uh, it's it's sad but true. Sad <laughs> but true. I, I'm a huge local hero fan, and we got you here on the podcast. I've got to ask you. In particular, there's one thing about Local Hero, and it's not just that Danny has now become Doctor Who, uh, which is bizarre for me, but the soundtrack by Mark Knopfler. Mm -hmm. The thing that's in my head all the time is that tune. Do you have, and I know lists are terrible and they're even worse to do off the top of your head, but what soundtracks stick in your head, aside from The Exorcist, of course, that kind of circle around your brain?
4: Well, I mean, Local Hero is a perfect example. And funnily enough, I did the the commentary track with Bill Forsyth just recently for the Blu-rays of um, Sinking Feeling and Gregory's Girl. And I'm a huge Bill Forsyth fan. When it was the 25th anniversary of Local Hero, we went back to... Was it was 25th? God, maybe 20th, 21st. We went back to the, the village in which it was shot, Penan, and they'd rebuilt the village hall there because they'd had a landslide, and they wanted to reopen it with a gala screening of Local Hero. And we got Bill to go and watch the film. We did a cult piece about it, and he was lovely. And I was talking to him about Local Hero, and I was asking him about music and films, and he said, you know, the thing is... I really don't like music in films. And I said I said well why? And he said because it's an indication that the film that you haven't done the thing you're meant to do. And and I said well but what about local hero? I love local hero. And he went, yeah. And he said and, right, and you're going to tell me 75% of what's great about local hero is the soundtrack. And I went, well yeah. And he said exactly. That means like 25% of it is me. And that you know there are filmmakers who say, you know, okay, well, I if I if I've got to bring the music in, it's a problem. I don't believe that at all. And incidentally, I don't think Bill believes it either. You look at David Lynch and the way he works with Angela Badlamenti. You look at the score for Fire Walk With Me. It's extraordinary. I just watched recently that lovely documentary about the making of Silent Running. And you see Peter Shickley recording those songs with Joan Baez. You know, when we did the Devil's documentary, there's that wonderful footage of the fires of London and Peter Maxwell Davis' score being recorded, you know, whilst they're throwing up the black and white images of the, of the film up on the screen because obviously they're, they're recording to, you know, to film... Mm. And Ken's dancing around with a tambourine in his hand like some kind of mad maverick. He is as much directing then as he was when he was on set. So... I, all the, the, you know, those are scores that matter to me. But Local Hero is the one which you know. It's a Sunday morning, and you wake up, and the CD is inevitably by the <laughs> by the CD player because it's been there forever. When and, would it not be there? And you just and what's interesting about that CD, of course, is that it begins with um, with that mm-hmm. which, you know that kind of It re- doesn't begin with and then no. it go, mm-hmm. and then a little bit. There's a sort of there's an acoustic version of and every bit of you goes oh. I'm on the beach you know and it does every single time Netflix and streaming
2: and consuming movies through the internet that's the way a lot of my friends and a lot of people I know are consuming media Mm -hmm. wholesale like both TV and film what would you say to a world which which was where we consumed our our, our film through Netflix and through other streaming services like that Is, is that a sad world for you or is it going to be like vinyl records will be like cinemas you have the people who still love them, uh, that go to them, and it's an important part for them. Mm-hmm. But really, it's, that's how you do it. You press a button and it's up on your screen.
4: I think that that's a very good analogy. I mean, I think that, you know, people make the analogy between vinyl and CD as between celluloid and, you know, DCP's digital projection. There was a lot of fuss a while ago about, all oh, people are going to consume films on their mobile phones, on their laptops, at home on television, and what's that going to mean for cinema? For, in my opinion, it's good for cinema and it's good for the following reason. Firstly, if you had simultaneous releasing of everything, you'd pretty much knock piracy on the head. with a, Because the only way you're going to stop piracy is by saying, look, you want this stuff and you can get it. So how about we give it to you legitimately mm. and then you make a nominal contribution to the, you know, to the film as a result of it? If you released movies simultaneously, said, OK, you can choose today whether you want to see this. And there are many examples of this happening. I mean, you know, Barbarian sounds too. there's a lot of distributors who now do their own streaming. Field in England. Yeah, exactly. Well, Field in England is a very good case because, you know, I think some people would say the ideal Field in England experience was the Blu-ray, actually. If you say, look, you can have the choice, then fine. Firstly, people get to choose how they want to see it. Secondly, people who go to the cinema are seeing it in the cinema because they want to be in the cinema. There is nothing worse than being in a cinema with a bunch of people who don't actually want to be there. They're on their mobile phones, they're on their laptops, they're talking, they're throwing You know, people say, "Oh, well, you know, you're such a fascist about the behaviour in cinema." No, I'm not. It's just I'm in the cinema, and being in the cinema, the auditorium, and the you know the projected experience is not enhanced by somebody ordering a mini cab behind me or you know. I mean, I was in a preview screening recently, and someone answered. The their phone i mean they literally the phone didn't just ring they answered it and you just feel like okay right we've gone through the looking glass now literally he literally went yeah no i'm in a preview yeah no uh i don't know about 40 45 uh, and he kind of looked round to people to go yeah what planet are you on so f- some people say if you simultaneously release things cinemas would suffer they would. The cinemas that would suffer are the multiplexes that are offering complete, offering an experience that is so minimal that you might as well stay at home and watch it on your mobile phone. All the things like the, the independent cinemas that I love, like the Phoenix in East Finchley, or you know, or, or you know, the Plaza in Truro, the cinemas that I love going to. People go to those because they want to see them in an auditorium and they want to see them with other people who want to see them in an auditorium. Give people a choice in the end. It, cinema won't be the only way of seeing it, but I, as long as I have the option to see it there then that's great. And if people want to watch it on their mobile... I know David Lynch said, for example, you know, if you watch Eraserhead on your mobile phone, you haven't seen Eraserhead. And I kind of agree with that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to dictate how people consume it. It's fine. It's up to them. I would say, look, you want to see a movie, see it in a cinema.
2: On this point, just to wrap it up, is that there is nothing worse than a bad book, but there is something quite special about a really bad film
4: yeah a really bad film actually there's nothing worse than a moderately poor film Mm. that's why i think diana Diana. is you know it's like if only we could have given it a one star kicking it wasn't it wasn't a one star film it was it was a two star bore that was the problem it was so well behaved it was like oh we don't want to offend anyone and i'm sitting there going please offend me (laughs) please do something shocking anything at all but no it's a stranger world where you're you're desperate for diana to offend you i.e. the character yeah that's right yeah, yeah. And, and can I just look forward to the t- tirade of abuse that you get if you said I'm desperate for Diana to offend me Mark
2: it's been an absolute pleasure thank well, you thank so you. much thank for joining us thank you
4: for us. having me it's a real pleasure and you know and, and there's a movie magazine that continues to you know to do movie criticism and to see it as something which is worth doing I, you know I hope you continue to flourish keep up the good work thank you very much
0: all right now it's time for movie news what have you got for me I've got one We've been
2: talking about Prometheus being disappointing. In the latest issue of Empire, which you can buy in your own local newsstand, newsagent, wherever you want to go and get it, it's also an iPad, you have an interview with Ridley Scott. And in this interview, Mr Scott mentions that, and this is the important uh, phrase, Prometheus 2 is written. Ooh. So that's been done. We we have a Prometheus 2 that's kind of boiling, simming away in the back hall. Other movies on his uh, dance card. We've also got Exodus, which is the most... Uh, important one i guess that's coming up uh, aiming for release late late next year which is of course the story of um you know, the Bible, with Christian Bale playing (laughs) Moses, uh, John Turturro playing a pharaoh, and uh, Sigourney Weaver, who uh, I think has worked with Ridley Scott before, uh, is playing uh, the wife of uh, another pharaoh. Mrs. Pharaoh, yeah. Mrs. Pharaoh, there you go, Mrs. Pharaoh. Uh, So there's a lot going on in Ridley Scott's life, and it's an interesting interview, so you should go and check it out, but it has caused no end of exasperation and excitement from both detractors and fans of Prometheus. It's amazing how much Prometheus cuts people Two ways. Either they're incredibly excited they might see more Michael Fassbender, I want to see more of him, or just abject disgust.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess it's one of these situations where, you know, people didn't love the first film, you know, certainly nitpick the plot to death. I know I did. Um, but at the same time, there are, you know, design elements there, concepts there that, with a better story perhaps, or stronger characters, might work brilliantly. I mean, there, there's no. I think it's very, very early for people to be writing off Prometheus 2 immediately.
1: I'm going to say Prometheus is not a bad film. It's just not the film people wanted. Uh, It's not an alien film uh, and it has some uneven patches. But I think as a sort of an independent sort of hard sci-fi film, I actually very much enjoyed it.
2: I enjoyed it for what it's worth, but and, and there was a lot of it that I did like, but it is the script and the script alone that really drove me up the wall, where th- decisions were made and plot moves moved in a way that defied belief for me, and that somebody who is in his 70s and has been doing this job for many a year should go, well, I didn't write the script, but I know that's not the way to tackle this problem. People discovering things, reporting back on things, people acting in a way that would not work with who they are as professional people. Anyway see previous podcasts for how we feel about that and, you know, I, I respect that it. it's not a terrible film, as much as people want it to be uh, My other news stories are far less contentious, we have uh, Daniel Radcliffe, who won't be playing uh, the role of Freddie Mercury in uh, any movie anytime soon, uh, but will be playing Sebastian Coe in a movie called Gold, story of the now Lord, Sebastian Coe, and his rivalry with a fellow runner Steve Ovette, uh, back in the, well, late 70s early 80s. Now, In my head, they don't look that similar. (laughs) Doesn't really matter though, does it? Mm -mm. Danny Radcliffe's a good actor. Yeah. There's a story to be told here. Let's get excited. The other thing to be aware of is that the project is being directed by the Woman in Black director, James Watkins. So obviously there's a reunion of a sort. Is it called The Running Man? No, it's called Gold. Mm. Gold! That's a shame.
0: Thank you for not launching into full song, though. Yeah. It could have gone that way for a second.
2: One there. final, final thing is that Aaron Taylor-Johnson, who we've already known, kind of, but it hasn't been officially confirmed, is going to be officially Quicksilver in not X-Men Days of Future Past, but in Avengers Age of Ultron. Now, maybe now's the time to explain why there is both a Quicksilver in X-Men Days of Future Past and in Avengers is Age of Ultron. Because
1: he runs really fast between the two.
2: They just zip back and forth. In fact, that's not the case. There are two different actors doing uh, two different roles. Evan Peters, who, in a curious turn of events, was somebody who was in the original kickass, is playing Quicksilver in the Fox/ slash Marvel uh, X-Men Universe. This led one of our uh, Facebook commenters to say this. Aaron Masters a tip of the cap to you for saying, "So let me get this straight. The bloke from Kickass is playing Quicksilver in Avengers 2, as opposed to the bloke from Kickass who's playing <laughs> uh, Quicksilver in X-Men. Okay, good, now I know.
0: So that's, that's everything clear uh, yeah. in that case. yes.
2: It's interesting,
1: isn't it? Because I would absolutely love to see what I can only assume is the most Byzantine document known to man, which was the contract which specifically divvied up the Marvel properties. So my understanding of this is that the mutants are all owned by Fox, except for obviously Quicksilver, who is a mutant, but he's also part of the Avengers and he's the brother of the Scarlet Witch, who's definitely part of the Avengers. Is kind of a mutant, but it doesn't really matter. And so he exists simultaneously in both franchises and therefore the rights are owned both by Disney and by Fox and it's all terribly confusing and to make it even worse two people from the same film are playing him in two different films mm-hmm.
0: Yes and also don't forget that in the X-Men franchise they can mention that his dad is Magneto but in the Avengers franchise they can't
1: Also if you want to be really pedantic you could say that actually post the decimation he's no longer a mutant and if he's no longer a mutant then surely he's no longer Fox and therefore would be Disney's and therefore there's a loophole there Wow. I just like the
3: idea of all these starchy lawyers sitting around a table just chatting about this stuff, trying to figure it out. How many billable hours do you think that is? <laughs> also, can you imagine the lawyer getting paid to sort of work out the
1: minutiae of what qualifies as a mutant What are his powers? What are
3: his powers? He's not a mutant. Uh, you're superior. on her, you're on
1: her, point of order. <laughs> I think you'll find.
2: Uh, Scarlet Witch we've mentioned uh, in another situation where it's presumed that they are about to sign on the dotted line. Uh, Elizabeth Olsen is down for the role of Scarlet Witch. So, that's something to be aware of. If you want to find out who these characters are, we have uh, a couple of features on the website which you should go and check out, which explains who these
3: various muties are and what their powers might be.
0: Indeed. Don't call them muties, that's disrespectful. It's also racist. Phil?
3: Well, if you're a fan of the HBO show Entourage, <clears throat> oh, are you? Yeah. Are there any out there at the moment? I'm not sure. I used to love it, but it seems a long distance. I know a few. Distant. The movie is coming. It's been, it's been bubbling away for a while, and it's finally via Twitter, the creator and showrunner Doug Ellen has confirmed that it's happening. There's been some chat about possible holdouts, uh, which uh, with uh, Turtle himself, Jerry Ferrara, amongst them, but apparently not really holding out on the contracts, just there were some issues about Piven getting paid more Having more back end On this deal And money money Raised its ugly head Piven should get paid more Because he's the only reason This thing would work But you know It's all been solved And they're doing it At a budget In California So if anyone's worried About shooting movies In California This one obviously Has to kind of be shot In California Because it's a Hollywood movie And they've got tax credits And it's kicking off In January And the big question here is Is this something You might be interested in Will it be Aquaman Or Medellin Aye Exactly <laughs> And which cameos Would we like to see back
0: Presumably all of them
3: Yeah I want it to be
2: just essentially For an hour and a half People I really like In fact people I like more Than anybody else Who's actually a main character Of the film Just coming in Room after room Of just people They open a door Oh there's Gary Busey Open another door Oh it's I don't know Arnold Schwarzenegger Riding a horse I just I want more And more and more cameos And then I'll leave And I'll be happy And I'll buy another ticket And go People
1: playing douchebag Versions of themselves Definitely
3: Johnny Galecki Genius Seth Green is funny We'd like to see him back (laughs) Yeah he's Martin Landau's awesome (laughs) Uh, Matt Damon Matt Damon it just kills me in the show he's phenomenal but Boosie mainly yeah <laughs> a massive Boosie role but this would take a, about six months after the last episode of season eight was it when it finished was it seven, was it seven or eight, eight? It was seven it, eight? I thought it was seven yeah it could have been eight anyway I yeah, sorry go ahead um, well we had Mark Wahlberg sitting here didn't we talking about Broken City and he said that it was all going to happen and he did, such yes. and such and it was going to be in this you know six months on here are the boys it's just going to be the guys doing their thing doing guy stuff and because uh, we uh, more of the same, really. Yeah, we left Ari by by uh, by a
1: pool in the Mediterranean, didn't we? Is that right? Yeah, I don't even remember. The, it, was, it was a post credit sting, wasn't it? He gets a call and he gets offered a job as I believe a studio head. I can't really remember actually. Yes, that's like right. That. He's now a studio. And head, then actually. and then he's thinking, do I take it? Do I not? And then you think, yeah, he does. He takes it. He wants to run a studio. He's going to run a studio. As, long as, a studio as
2: long as Stone is in this, Stone. As long as Sloan is in this, I'm happy. You like Sloane? She's absolutely beautiful. Yes. I'd like to
3: see Stellan Skarsgård back as a, for another, what's he called? Vol- Volker Schlondorf, oh, Smokejumpers director, yes. yes. That would be genius. Who calls out what's his face and not be able to act? For shit. So I don't know where his career's going to go next. He seems to have done all of the things he can do, but we'll see what the film provides. It could be fun.
0: Cool. James, what have you got?
3: First of all, the, uh,
1: the the lesser of the two White House Siege movies this year is getting a sequel in all likelihood. Uh, Olympus Has Fallen being uh, replaced now by London Has Fallen. Oh. And I'm going to avoid the obvious Clash joke there. Um, or the London Bridge has fallen down or, or indeed that as well I, the basic sort of uh, uh, set up for this is that it, it all happens again kind of but at this time they're uh, over on a state visit to the UK for the Prime Minister's funeral which may in fact be wishful thinking on the part of the screenwriters and and it all kicks off and Mike Banning has to step in to save the day because obviously we British people need Americans to get us out of trouble and Ooh. Antoine yes indeed, Antoine Fuqua has, has very wisely uh, decided not to be a part of this but you know, do you know what I'm, I'm being harsh I quite enjoyed this film I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoyed White House Down because I think that was the the more ridiculous and more stupid and i enjoyed it more for that the issue i think they had with this is that they were a little too per faced and i think white house down had a real sense of humor about itself and this wasn't self-aware enough and i
2: think if they rectify that with the second one uh i think we'll be in business if we have aaron eckhart tied to something or locked up against something for about an hour it's a good movie it's a good movie it'll do well
0: that sign's a very Fifty Shades of Grey of you. My goodness. Mm, little, little That's a good bit. idea. He should be. <laughs> <laughs> the, thing
1: is, the thing is, and you've been watching it, because I don't know if anyone knows, but over the last few Saturday nights, they've been playing the Die Hard films on a channel on television. I don't know which one. Anyway, I've stayed in the last two Saturday nights. I watched Die Hard, then I watched Die Harder. And watching those films makes you realise how mediocre all of these subsequent type films are. Um, and, you know, it's a bit sad. You know, even Die Hard 2 is infinitely superior to most of these.
0: It's fair. It's certainly superior to... the latest Die Hard.
1: Well, yes, the less said about that the better. But uh, it's true, even Die Hard isn't Die Hard these days.
3: Did this film do particularly? I don't remember it doing particularly well at the box office. But it didn't cost that much. No, no, I know it wasn't that expensive.
0: The, this one um, did much better than White House Down at the box office, so that's why it was kind of adjudged the winner of the White House Down movies of the year. Yeah, you
3: got to get out first, haven't you, with it? in, this, much, in yeah. these two horse races. But uh, it was a funny thing, and actually, I think I said before that I thought the opening of this film was better than anything in in White House Down, personally. It was pretty full on. The bridge sequence, a, huh? The bridge sequence. The bridge sequence. Yeah, but no one talks to a squirrel. What bridge sequence? Is that not what you're talking about? Oh, not that bit. No, no. The <laughs> attack on... Sorry, the bridge sequence. <laughs> I, was <about> to say, <laughs> I don't was remember. Awful. Yeah, the windscreen bit was a little, oh, little bit shocking, the, but the bit where he like puts his put his jacket and tie on. I yeah, loved that. That was very powerful. <laughs> no, the attack. The when the Koreans attack with their you know their gunship and whatnot. That was good. They had some had some some fresh some fresh. Uh, Brutal impact in it I like that.
0: Yeah, I can't believe you 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 said that was good. That saw like thousands of civilians getting horribly murdered. Yes, that's quite, your idea of good. That's not the point of the film though. Isn't it?
3: <laughs> you can't just go. Oh no, there's not a civilian dead? There were a lot. Of, you're right. There was a. It's terrible. Who can condone that? The
0: humanity. My goodness, Phil. You had another story, though.
1: I did have another story. It's it's just a quick one, really. It's that uh, um, Steve McQueen, the 12 Years a Slave director, uh, is uh, moving to HBO to do some TV, which is nice, to do an as-yet-untitled film. Uh, But he's doing it with Michael Carnahan. Really, apropos of nothing except for the fact that, you know, TV is extraordinarily awesome at the moment and goes on to uh, reinforce my argument that, in many ways, it's better than films sometimes. Get out! Is. Shut up, James. Yeah, fair enough. I'll start saying that in Old Norse, and then you'll see. No, loads of great stuff, and it's an interesting sign of the times, isn't it? It did very much used to be seen as you know you'd get that film actors, film directors, film writers slumming it on the small screen, and now a lot of very established film talent obviously move to the small screen because it gives them much more creative freedom to tell the stories they want to tell in the format they want to tell, uh, with greater engagement uh, with their with their viewership. Um, and, it, you know, we're in an age now where, where that kind of slightly mature adult storytelling is, is, is in short supply in cinema for a variety of financial reasons, whereas on television you can still do it. So, hooray for television.
0: Do we know anything about the plot of this one? Uh,
1: yes, it's kind of a... It's been described as a kind of uh, six degrees of separation meets shame, uh, <laughs> if if you can if you can picture that. Uh, so
2: you mean it's six
1: degrees of uh, separation? G- oh, very good. Uh, I will read it to you. It's simply a young African-American man... ...enters New York high society and hides the truth about his past. It's has been yeah. like Mad Men, then. A little bit, a little bit. The Dick Whitman of uh, of this particular show.
0: Well, McQueen certainly hasn't put a foot wrong so far, so we've got to be excited about this one, I think. Yeah. We should also mention, before we move on from news, that this week, of course, sees the release of a new Empire magazine, and it is a very exciting one. We have four, count them, four covers, uh, all for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smaug, a subscriber's cover if you're lucky enough to get that. Uh, well done you. Um, but Inside is an absolute treat. We've got uh, our set report from X-Men Days of Future Past. If you saw the trailer and got incredibly excited earlier this week, believe me, that is a feature you will not want to miss. As um, is
2: the trailer breakdown we have on the website.
0: As is the trailer breakdown we have on the website, absolutely. Yes,
2: featuring Brian Singer.
0: Featuring Brian Singer's take and explanation for much of what you see. Uh, we also, Inside, have uh, the report from the set of The Hobbit obviously in New Zealand Ian Nathan went back to talk about Desolation of Smog and find out how Peter Jackson really works how he builds Middle Earth and also to talk to his leading men and our cover men about their characters this time around uh Ian McKellen calling it a, a buddy wizard movie is a particular high point if you ask me. Um, and much much more. What are your favourite bits guys?
2: I've got lots of great stuff in there. Uh, not just because I was uh, lucky enough to be part of making it. I spoke to Clark Gregg uh, for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. He was an absolute delight and it really comes across on the page. He's just naturally very witty and very quick and it's just it was just a real pleasure to speak to him. Uh, and it was also a pleasure to speak to uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller who gave me some time whilst we were in Comic Con to talk about the Lego movie which is another movie I am a little too excited about. That's already in my folder for I've decided it's going to be good even if it isn't good I'll be talking to people and saying it's good so there was that other stuff I love in this we've got a big Doctor Who special I'm not the biggest Who fan but it's a feature that makes me interested in the origins of whatever this is and however it happened uh, we've also got JFK times two uh, in the form of a piece on Parkland and Oliver Stone's Version of events that um, is,
0: of course, for the fiftieth anniversary later this month of the assassination.
2: There's also fiftieth anniversaries going there on. Are, here. Yeah, Doctor Who is Doctor another Who one there. Well. Uh, we've also got just to make things uh, extra exciting, a fantastic interview. I'm not just saying it because our Lord High Commander, Super Ruler of all things Empire, Mark Dinning, the editor and chiefy chief, uh, did the interview. But there's a very good interview with Michael Fassbender in the magazine, which you should check out because he uh, he touches upon what Mark called Cockgate. So. Yeah. If you're intrigued, find out more. It's in the magazine.
0: We also, people, have a Scarlett Johansson talking about porn. So if that's your kind of thing, you know, that might be your kind of thing.
3: I like this picture of Stephen Fry as the mayor of Lake Town. <laughs> Quite blackadder-y.
0: It is a little bit blackadder, isn't it? Gosh.
3: Master of Lake Not
1: Town, one, not two, not three, but four collector's covers five if you include the subscribers one uh, and you can have all four of those if you get the iPad edition which has a lovely animated video cover which, uh, uh, which features all of the covers oh, so very uh, good. there you go see what I did there
0: high tech yeah. yeah so yes the new issue of Empire it's on the shelves now go seek it out Another day, another interview, Uh, Kevin Feige is the probably not evil genius behind the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its many phases. Juggling multiple branching franchises in his enormous brain, his latest release is Thor The Dark World, which reunites us with the quasi-god and his errant brother Loki following the events of the Avengers. Along with director Alan Taylor, who's fresh from Westeros, where he worked on Game of Thrones, it's another unfolding of the wider Marvel Universe and a hellishly funny film in its own right. Kevin Feige and Alan Taylor came in to talk to myself and Chris Hewitt.
5: Uh, we are delighted to be joined on the Empire podcast by Alan Taylor, director of Thor The Dark World, and Kevin Feige, producer of Thor The Dark World. Gentlemen, welcome.
6: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
5: Are you over your jet lag? You okay? You've been in London a few days now. I uh, should be, but I'm not.
6: Um, uh, <laughs> last night was in a, a non sleeping night, so uh, that makes for a better podcast. <laughs> it does. It does. Delirium. The, is good. the, the guards are down. I
5: like yeah. to stay awake for four days before any podcast. Smart. So, yeah. <laughs> very smart. That's <laughs> going to be interesting.
0: That explains a lot. Doesn't it? Does, it, does, it
6: does. Wow. That's
5: so clear. psychedelic. Uh, first things first. This movie starts with a funky new Marvel Studios logo. Kevin, can you can talk about that? That's why. Uh, thank you for asking yeah. about
7: that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it does. It uh, It is the first film, you may notice, that only has the Marvel Studios logo in front of it. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, have had numerous movies that have had the Marvel logo on it but is shared space with uh, whatever studio was distributing or releasing it. And because Disney owns us, and Marvel essentially is a Disney and falls under that umbrella, uh, they made the decision that we certainly agreed with to only have a Marvel Studios logo on it. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I thought it would be appropriate to expand upon what we have. We didn't want to completely reinvent the wheel. We love that flip logo that we uh, that we uh, created for the first Spider-Man film way back when, but bringing a little more life to it, a little more dimension to it, and in particular, a fanfare scored by Brian Tyler mm. um, was uh, was uh, this felt like the uh, the appropriate time to introduce that.
5: Did you uh, go through many iterations of the fanfare? Did anyone? say, Marvel, Marvel, for no. example.
7: <laughs> I've got a bunch of... Now <laughs> you do it. Yeah. I've got a bunch of Ultimates. <laughs> now <laughs> you do it. That would have yeah. been amazing. Uh, well, Brian did a few versions, but, but Brian has been doing amazing work for us of late with mm-hmm. Iron Man 3 yeah. uh, score and scoring Thor the Dark World for us. And he did, he did a few iterations, but pretty much quickly landed on, uh, on uh, what you hear in front of the film.
0: So coming back to the world of Thor, what was the what was the big kind of challenge? What was the first thing that you had to decide on with this one because you you know you're coming out of, you know, the the just barnstorm of the Avengers. You've had Iron Man 3 and it's gone off and done its own thing. So what was the sort of starting point for for a second Thor?
7: Well, we started developing this one, you know, long before The Avengers was was even released. We had been we were shooting it while we were developing this one. And uh, and the key was to figure out you know sort of where we wanted to take Thor next, what we wanted to do with Loki post his villainous acts in Avengers. And we did we did know early on we did not want Loki to be the primary villain of this film. That would have been essentially three in a row, and we didn't want to do that. And there's such an assortment of a rogues gallery from from Thor, so deciding on the on the villain was important. And also early on we we knew that Ken Branagh wanted to go. And, uh, and do other things after the first Thor, so we needed to find a filmmaker to come on board and, and, uh, and continue and breathe new life into uh, Asgard.
5: And Alan, you are that new filmmaker. I don't want to break it to you, but you are. It's, um, <laughs> it's so lucky the work that I'm here
6: today.
5: <laughs> Precisely. Uh, how did you get the, the job? Because I, I know there was uh, hmm. a number of people fighting for this. Yeah,
6: the, um, it was a funny process, because I remember, you know, I've said this before, but it's, it's true. When I got the first phone call, I thought a mistake had been made, because I was <laughs> yeah. deep in the trenches of TV, um, and this was a, you know, a global blockbuster and I think it was sort of a circling around process because we spoke on, by phone early on, but I was still in Game of Thrones and had to finish that season and so sort of fell out of it and lost touch with it. And then, as luck would have it, when I finished that season, they were looking for a director uh, again, so mm-hmm. to speak. Uh, and I got a chance to come in and meet uh, Kevin and the rest of the folks there. And I, I went in you know, pretty scared because it's a huge uh, global operation. And my first encounter was just I, that was my first sense that uh, given the scale of these movies, it really is a kind of an intimate place to work. We had one conversation and then we started working on the movie. uh,
7: Yeah, uh, we had that phone call, which I think was in July of, I want to say, 2011. And we and uh, uh, myself and Craig Kyle, uh, executive producer, I think were in his room at Comic-Con in San Diego. And we spoke to you on the phone Honestly. and you were dealing with the, the was dire a,
6: wolves or something. Yeah, I, I had dire yes. wolves that weren't doing the right thing yeah, and was pretty uh, cool. I was standing in the art department talking on the on yes. cell phone.
7: Uh, and then a lot of time <laughs> went by and, uh, and then we had a few other conversations and a meeting and I remember at the end of that meeting we were like, okay, so we'd love you to do it. And you'd be like, wait, so that's it? I've got the job? And we said, if you want it, and thankfully you uh, you did.
6: It was even more f- strange than that, because I think I got up to go to the bathroom at one point, halfway through this pretty <laughs> long meeting, and when I came back, they were all sort of smiling in the room. And, um, I don't know what was said after I left, but it was better than what I was saying, probably, in the room.
0: <laughs> so we, we were having a discussion last week, when Chris was writing his review, about the genre of this film. Because I was suggesting kind of war movie, because there is that, that section in the middle segment where it really is a Oh, it feels like a war movie. It feels like you know a blitz Good. uh kind of section, but at the same time, you know like Malekith is uh, i believe based uh, or comes out ultimately out of the prose Edda, which was the same source for tolkien so mm-hmm. is it a fantasy? Is it a classic fantasy at the same time? What is it? What do we call it?
7: We call it a marvel movie <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like that it's a mix up actually. I like that it that it uh is called the Dark World that it starts with a prologue that takes place five thousand years ago, that it does have, as you say, uh, you know, battle, some battle sequences, both on the ground, it, when we meet Thor, that are as big as any, any sort of practical battle sequences as, as we've ever done, um, and in the air, which are as big as any aerial battle sequence that, that we've ever done. At the same time, um, now that we've been screening the movie, people talk about how funny it is, mm. and, and mm. how the humor is working. So so what I love about Thor in the comics, and what Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and Walt Simonson and J. Michael Straczynski have, have done over the years... Is add all of those different elements, you know, not 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 staying sort of locked into any one particular thing. And when you're bouncing between modern day Earth and these other realms, I think
6: you have to have a bit of a sense of humor to to, to have it all become a cohesive whole. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The, the clash of worlds is built into this material because you've got nine realms and you're jumping between them, and so it sort of starts there. But I remember you know, there being days when I, I had to remind myself that we had elves on spaceships, and, and it was you know <laughs> <laughs> we had to take it seriously, and. As you say, the Marvel way is to also acknowledge that it's absurd sometimes, but um, you have to really invest in it and believe and combine those elements. So it's science fiction, fantasy, romantic comedy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Keep going. Well, it's yeah. interesting. The one thing it doesn't feel like, and I say this in my
5: review, is it doesn't feel like a superhero movie. Uh-oh. Uh, well, that's a good thing, I think. Because, um, well, Kevin, you've always said this, that you, you don't want the, the, your product to be homogenized. You don't want, you want people...
7: Be, uh, uh, not sick of these movies, I guess. Well, people, people have been asking me going back to to 2003 after, after Spidey, Spider-Man and X-Men 1 and 2, how many of these are, are going to work? When, when will the audience tire of these? And what I always said is what I always believed, which is as long as we keep making them as different as we can, which also just means utilizing all of the variety of source material that we have within the Marvel comics, um, that I think will be okay. and And continuing to to define and redefine what a quote-unquote comic book movie is. Because I never liked that people would put it into a particular category. How much longer are these comic book movies going to last? Mm. Was akin to, to saying, I thought, how much longer are people going to be making movies based on novels? How, much <laughs> long, how long is that going to last for? Nobody would ask that because people inherently understand that novels are incredibly unique and can be incredibly different. People who don't read comics do not inherently understand that. Um, but I hope what we've been able to do at Marvel Studios since 2008 is show them that with each movie we do, that
6: they are different, they can be diverse. And as a director, it was it was sort of liberating to hear Kevin talk about it in, in terms like this. Sometimes, you know, you would say that clearly there's a universe that's coherent, and it has to be coherent, and that partly means a kind of brand quality where people understand, more, in a sense, what the tone and level of entertainment they're going to get when they go to a Marvel movie, and everything has to congeal or can converge in the hubs that are the Avengers movies, but what I liked about the way Kevin spoke to me about it was that when those characters go off into their own worlds not only do you get to do their thing but you get to sort of emphasize that and, and push the differences you get mm-hmm. to feature the fact that our thor has one foot in fantasy and history yeah. and no other superhero that i know of has that or that iron man gets to go off and be really fast and funny and glib because that's what that world does so you get to you get to sort of be unique even in this huge connected universe iron man 2 was criticized for a lot of people saw it as a setup
5: the avengers and it seems to me that you've taken that on board and this movie doesn't feel like it's setting up anything until maybe the post-credits sting, and uh and iron man 3 felt like that as well so you, are you really now working to make these self-contained stories
7: well uh frankly we were always working towards that even with iron man 2 yeah. um uh uh, uh John favreau always saw nick fury as the gandalf of the of the marvel universe who could pop in <laughs> and pop out as as needed um and uh, and you know we wanted that relatively to be a, to be a self contained story. I understand that in hindsight it feels it feels um, like a buildup to something. I think now that we've built up to that, I think the original Captain America, save for the for the last scene mm. with Sam Jackson and uh, and even Thor, we constructed the Thor movie um, to introduce him into this world. Right. That's that's what that entire first movie was about. But we didn't shy away from the other worlds and the and the and the, and the massive amount of of mythology and backstory. Um, but in a post-Avengers world, um, uh, I think we're able to—and and again, we were in development and in and in some cases production on, on these two post-Avengers films before Avengers came out. And it was always our plan to say, okay, well, if Avengers works, <laughs> uh, it's going to work because people thought it was really cool that they all got together. And we have to prove instantly the next year when we do another solo movie, two other solo movies— that they're really cool by themselves, which is, what, which is what Iron Man 3 was meant to be and certainly what Thor The Dark World was meant to be. So there, there, are, there are hints uh, of what has happened in Avengers and some discussion. So if you've seen Avengers, you'll understand what people are talking about. And there's certainly seeds that go ahead towards what would, uh, we're setting up for, for later. But the job number one is always a self-contained movie. That's the way we always talked about it with, with Alan. Um, I don't think there was a lot of
6: well, Thor's got to do this because yeah, he's got to right, go to this right. next spot. No, because you guys are carrying the whole universe in your heads um, certainly more than I was. I think there was only one occasion, I can't remember what it was, there was one plot point we started thinking about at one point and we thought, well, actually, that might step on Avengers, but it was it was only one vague concern that it might echo or, or repeat something that was coming right. up. But uh, there was never any kind of here's your marching orders, or, you know, the, that game where you have to fold a paper over and make sure that the lines you're drawing line up with the game that, what comes later.
0: Okay, enough talking, enough equivocation It's time for the reviews uh, Given that we've already heard from the director and producer Let's kick things off with Thor The Dark World Which sees Chris Hemsworth's alien god Dealing with the re-emergence of his people's ancient enemies The Dark Elves Led by Christopher Eccleston's Malekith To deal with them, he'll need help from Natalie Portman's Jane Foster And his untrustworthy sibling Loki Tom Hiddleston, of course Of whom more later So, what did we think of this?
2: This is one of those films we're going to have to give a little bit more background to just to set the scene here uh, the Bifrost, and if you forget what the Bifrost is, Bifrost is the kind of bird-beaked sphere with a pointy bit that shoots the rainbow bridges of going to anywhere in the other realms. The from... Dartford
1: Tunnel of Asgard.
2: There we go. Yeah. Uh, that's been fixed, so that's good. Uh, Loki is imprisoned, but he's not wearing the same kind of awesome manacles he was at the end of Avengers. He's wearing regular manacles. Uh, and he's in the almost obligatory cinematic prison cell of, you can see straight through it, but you can't get through it. Crazy force field, yes. Crazy force field, hurrah. Uh, Jane Foster is uh, living in London. Uh, she's trying to get over the fact that the hunkiest man in any world has said that he loves her and everything seems to be groovy. Then he flies back to his uh, space town and then comes back to save the world and then goes back again and where the hell has he been on his life, her life even. Uh, so there's that, she's trying to get over it. She's been uh, trying to see other people, but unfortunately for some reason they don't match up. But thanks to some interplanetary, but not really interplanetary, but interdimensional portals and something known as the Convergence, which takes universes and kind of puts them together like a slice of pizza piled up on top of each other, they are connecting the worlds. And somehow Jane Foster gets involved with a mysterious MacGuffin known as the Ether, which for me uh, was essentially spooky black gloop uh, that Prometheus would be proud of, uh, that contaminates and changes people, and it's incredibly powerful we're told. So, she gets involved and somehow gets back into Asgard and so we can't probably say too much more than that.
0: Yes, we will have a spoiler podcast next week when it's out in the US, so do look out for that, but uh, in the meantime, we're going to stay spoiler-free, don't worry. But yeah, I mean, Overall, I think this was. We were pretty fond of this, right?
2: I would say so. I walked out with a big smile on my face. I said to Phil after I'd seen it, and this sounds like uh, I'm not giving it a compliment, but it's not cinema by any means, but it is a damn fun movie. You have to forgive it quite a few. Hang on, wait a second. And now, if you. What? Uh huh. Moments after the fact. But during the ride, it's a damn good ride. It
0: is. I think that it's it's actually quite a a tough one to kind of sum up. I've been, you know, talking about this on the radio and, and here this week and it's actually very difficult to sum up what the plot is because there's a lot going on. There's strands with, you know, Loki and his mother, Frigga, played by Rene Russo. There's bits, you know, uh, Odin, Anthony Hopkins has his own story going on, you know, Thor has stuff to do, Jane has stuff to do, her intern Darcy, Kat Dennings has stuff going on, she's got her own intern now, Stellan Skarsgård has got his own story, there's a lot happening and so to sum it all up is quite tough.
2: There were rumours before we went to watch this film, uh, just circling around, that it was a difficult shoot and the, the story was being changed quite a bit we heard rumours of Joss Whedon coming in and tweaking certain lines and it turns out that, of course was true uh, there are certain moments which I think if you're a big Whedon fan you'll notice as having his uh, his magic touch but I remember saying before we went to watch it what if it's good <laughs> with all this nonsense we've heard about it what if it's really good and it is really good but I think Chris the, the man who reviewed it in uh, the magazine uh, and obviously you can read the full review online said very diplomatically that it obviously shows signs of being in a state of flux at some point that being said it contains one of the most inventive and fun uh final acts you'll see um, for a long long time Uh, it's set in greenwich and uh, although there are a couple of not quite knowing the uh, location as well as we'd like them to um, some tube directions don't quite go to plan it's lovely to see london get smashed up the way it gets again. smashed up in this one <laughs> uh, it's funny to think as we've been discussing that London will fall again but this one was a, one of my favourites, London um, takedowns it behooves me in this case to be the bucket of cold water no I didn't dislike it I I actually I
1: enjoyed this film immensely Uh, that said I didn't think it was great because I think well there's a lot of enjoyment the the script is great there's loads of loads of really good comedy moments in it I also think Alan Taylor did a very good job Um, a lot of people think oh who's he he's actually a very well known director on television he has directed everything from Mad Men to Game of Thrones to Lost he's even done two episodes of the West Wing so he's you know he knows his stuff uh, even if you've never heard of him um and it's well put together. It's For me, while there's a lot going on, as you say, it's all trivia. And there didn't seem to be a great deal of point to a lot of it. It seemed very much like, to be very cynical, we need a Thor film, we need a MacGuffin, let's have this MacGuffin, let's have these enemies, let's have this fight, and blah, blah, blah. That said, I think... They, they make up for that with, uh, with a lot of stylish, stylistic flourish. I think in terms of the comedy, Kat Dennings is hilarious. Uh, Tom Hillison is extraordinarily funny in it as well. Uh, and there's some great visual gags in it. There's an extraordinary line of hammer humour towards the end, which really I thought was wonderful, uh, which we can't really explain without ruining the film. But yes, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of fun. Uh, plays the comedy up in the same way I think that the first film did, but not, I think, as good a film. That's the first one. I think the first one had a tighter premise. That whole fish out of water it was a nice setup. Uh, it worked very well. This one felt a little bit like they were wandering around in search of a story.
0: Oh, so cynical! But this one, I would say, had a, a much better last act than the first one. I would um, put
1: Hammer Time. Yes. Hammer Time. Um, yeah. The, it, oh, yeah. I'll grant you that. Actually, the, the last, the last fight is uh, is quite good. Uh, but in the same way, and I don't think this is a really spoiler to say, in the same way as, as I think Man of Steel has, there gets to a point where. It becomes a little tedious watching nearly indestructible people slap each other around. Um, They, again, like I say, they get around this with stylistic touches. They do some very, very fun, clever things with the fight narrative, uh, which makes it work. But there's no real sense of jeopardy, do you know what I
2: mean? You don't really believe anyone's going to kill Thor on the topic of jeopardy there is a there's a scene a very important scene in the middle of the film maybe towards the la- latter half of the second act where you do feel jeopardy and it's funny comparing that scene to the final scene where as you say it is a bit of a you know smash 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 situation mm. uh, whereas this previous scene that i'm alluding to but not describing in full uh, is is genuinely oh this is big boy shit this this is means business yeah so yeah it's not as if they can't do it it's just that they didn't it's become more usual you know i'm i'm looking back at the year now and how many you've seen it in the trailer how many films have had a spaceship or a big ship crashing into a major city on earth you've had star trek into darkness of a fashion you've had man of steel and now you've got thor the dark world you've seen it in the trailer it's this gorgeously designed beautiful kind of geiger but kind of more mechanic at the same time like a
0: knife like yeah kind of uh ship yeah. like
2: a like a sharp has, blade. A, has a minbari touch to it helen doesn't i suppose think? it does yeah. yes it's Jen. like it's made of dragon glass but anyway it's coming in and it's smashing into the uh, uh royal naval college uh, down in greenwich and i'm just thinking is it like you know when movies just come along and they all do the same thing we've had this discussion before on the podcast where you go so this is a movie about people jumping into books so that's ink cart and it's bedtime stories have we just had two years where spaceships crash into Earth?
1: Lest we forget, they did do a wonderful thing, which is give uh, give Idris Elba's Heimdall or Heimdall as they would say in Old Norse. Um,
0: He's been watching Vikings, I've been you've got to ex-
1: Vikings, use him. Yes. Um, something to do, and you got to see him run around in his giant golden helmet and start, you know, mixing shit up, which is which is something I thought was lacking in the first film.
2: I found in the first film, and this is made even more um, obvious when you watch the deleted scenes for Thor but the Warriors 3 were a weak cup of tea and when they were on screen for the first film I was like oh please come on there's a bit in the deleted scene where I think it's Fandral, or the, who was played by a different uh, actor in the first film he's surrounded by a gaggle of girls and he's doing this Errol Flynn thing and he goes who wants to polish my sword? Whoa. <laughs> That's
0: just,
1: rude. Just going, oh. Goodness. No, no. See, there's one of my favourite scenes from the first film is when uh, they're in the, the yeah. diner
2: and then Vostok's banging on the glass and waving, and I just think that's absolute genius. Hello. <laughs> uh, but this time around, I think The Warriors 3 much better and much more enjoyable. I think Darcy is much better. Previously, I think she was a little much in the first film, but she gets it just right and mm. she has one of the funniest moments in the film. I go on at length about this in the spoiler podcast, but if you are allergic or cannot stand the, the flim flam went to the boobly beep and if you haven't picked up the shim it won't debagulate language, there's a bucket of that in here.
0: Yeah.
3: Science gets
2: them. sciencey,
0: sciencey, science. If
3: you've ever watched an episode of Star Trek, you'll be fine. that's also true do you need to stay to the very very end you do you do Now, I I
0: don't think this is a spoiler I know some people consider the knowledge that there will be a post-credit sting a spoiler but frankly it's a public service announcement to let you know whether you need to stay or not and it's a Marvel movie there is a mid-credit sting and there is a post-credit sting do not move from your seat if you're interested in seeing that until the lights have come up and everything has stopped even
3: then Stay, <laughs> yes,
0: yeah.
1: Don't, don't leave, don't the leave until it until it plays again, just <laughs> to so be a sure. Good Twelve hours. Also worth noting that as is Marvel's way, the mid-credit sting tends to be the narratively important one, and the post-credit
2: sting tends to be the comedy one. That's a spoiler. Uh,
1: it's not really. They do it all the time. Every single one. It's consistency.
2: Yeah. But but do stay. Also, just to touch on it again, echoing again what Chris said in the mag, I think Chris Hemsworth is increasingly confident and and enjoyable in this role. He is. And it will be a very sad day if he ever gets replaced. Uh, and though there isn't as enough there isn't as much of him as maybe the diehard Hiddlestoners would have liked when he's on screen Tom Hiddleston is electric and fills the screen
1: He actually he as you said I think both of those actors inhabit these roles so much better this time around I think uh, you can just feel Chris Hemworth's palpable relief that he no longer has to
3: dye his eyebrows and I think that really enhances <laughs> the character let me ask one more question if you're one of the three or four people that would be going to see this film at the cinema perhaps with a friend sure and haven't seen the first film will it make sense?
0: I think it mostly will it might take you take you a slight minute to figure out you know, everybody's family relationships um, but I think you'll be okay. Um, I think most people, even if they didn't see Thor, will have seen Avengers and I think Avengers in some ways sets this up actually a lot more than Thor does so with a bit of luck, you know, it might take you a minute but I think you'll figure stuff out.
1: It's a man with a giant hammer. It's not a, is there a lot of that? I think, I think you should see Thor in the way that I believe uh, the creators intended it, which is as a kind of unofficial
3: prequel to the History Channel's Viking series. You and your Vikings. Is there a lot of that uh, Iron Man 3 shingle of people going around going, oh, what happened in New York? Oof, how about that? Let's have a hug.
0: There's a couple of mentions, but it's not over Okay.
3: What I will say is that quite a few the biggest,
2: biggest laughs, as in the room feels like it's just been tipped upside down, everyone's laughing, uh, is, are based on Marvel lore and knowing Marvel little gags. So if people are really not that big a fan of it, I don't think they're going to start laughing this time around.
0: The, the, there was one moment halfway through where people actually missed the the joke because they were laughing so hard at the visual um, in one, one of the screenings I went to. So yeah, be aware. Maybe it's, it's ideal to have seen some, but if you haven't, you'll still get some enjoyment out of it. So anyway, that is Thor of the Dark World. We gave that four stars for much, much more in much spoilery depth with more from our interviewees as well, do check out the um, spoiler podcast, which will be up on probably the 11th of November. Okay, next, by way of utter contrast, it's Short Term 12, which is a low-budget, under-the-radar indie, about a foster home for kids um, and the young carers who run it. Uh, Brie Larson stars as Grace, who finds her own life in almost as much turmoil as one of her charges. So, what was our take on this, Ali?
2: Well, uh, apologies for talking so much, but uh, Short Term 12 is one of my favourite films of this year. Uh, It really touched me and was very moving and kind of came out of nowhere. I was asked to watch it not on a cinema screen but uh, on a screener disc as they're called. I was given a DVD to go and watch it and uh, in in preparation for an interview I was doing with its star Brie Larson who I cannot uh, compliment enough. Uh, She is on her way to being one of the biggest actresses uh, uh, that that hopefully we'll be seeing on uh, bigger and better and you know other projects basically she's stunning as this uh, foster care assistant called grace and she deals with a variety of different complicated young adults as they come to terms with either their family not being there for them or their family no longer being alive uh all this kind of stuff
0: or their family being abusive and yeah. you know all sorts of just messy emotional stuff
2: and she's got a she's got to fight the good fight and keep them cheery and, and keep them going in a in a foster care facility which is essentially a holding place before they go somewhere else before they get placed into permanent foster care or they turn 18 there are quite a few 17 year olds here who were who were just becoming adults and it's about coping with their difficulties but it's 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 created by this guy called Destin Daniel Critton and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because it's just one of those difficult ones uh he is the writer director of this he previously made a short called confusingly Short Term 12 as well so that's a short called Short Term 12 which was about a similar world but didn't necessarily tell this story uh the through line is Grace's character as she deals with it but Destin as I'm calling him was a short term foster care uh, helper himself and it's a story from his own life so it's really written from the heart and you can feel every character is entirely true a standout actor outside of uh, Brie Larson in this film who I would really hope if there's any justice in the world would get some kind of Oscar uh, recommendation is uh, Catelyn Dever who you might know from Justified who plays uh, the adopted coincidence I think so, uh, daughter of Mags um, in the second series of Justified and she is wonderful in this she re- she plays a very difficult child who's been through a lot of stuff we've mentioned bad parenting and she really screams at the wall and gets a muffin on her face uh, for reasons I won't explain it's a delightful film but it's also dark and funny and moving and clever and witty and real it's all sorts of things i recommend it heartily we gave it five stars and i'm very pleased that we did it's an unknown director coming to the table with his first film there are excellent acting performances phil and helen you both saw it quite recently mm. I, I hope you echo what i'm saying i I'm, I'm being quite effusive about it
0: pretty much i think it's, it's one of these films that's very hard to make sound as good as it is because you say fostered Care, you know, um, young people who have been abused and mistreated, and so on. And it just sounds like it's going to be unbearable. Frankly, it sounds like it's going to be just too tough a watch. And it f- miraculously, and I think it's mostly because of the cast—not just Larson, but but everyone around her—it, um, it, you know, it manages to to not. Let you lose faith in humanity, which I think is a, is a pretty good thing. Honestly, it's definitely definitely worth seeing. Uh, my dad works in this kind of world, and uh, and I've already told him to take a busman's holiday and go see it.
3: You're right. It, it uh, it's a narrow path between overly mawkish and sentimental on the one side, and 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 and, and ugh, cliched, uh, and on the other, being difficult to engage with because it's so dark and so difficult, and it has moments of levity and moments of humour and some great writing as well. And some great standout scenes, too, to film with some superb ste- scenes that will stay with you. And, uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it as well.
2: My interview with Brie Larson can be found not only in the magazine, which we've already mentioned, but there's an extended edition on the website. Uh, by the way, if you don't recognise Brie Larson as a name, you may know her as Envy Adams, the lead singer... X of Scott Pilgrim in Scott Pilgrim vs the world. She's the one who sings the song that is eventually dubbed in by Metric but you can also hear her version. The Clash at Demonhead.
1: She, it's not actually dubbed in by Metric in the film, it's actually yeah, her. Oh, it. it's her in the film yeah. but you can get on the... That's yeah. right, yeah. okay.
2: Uh, so that's her and you might also know if you're a diehard community fan and you've been sticking around through the fourth series where, in a very good episode of an otherwise quite patchy series, she plays Rachel who's the coat check girl in an episode where... Uh, good old Abed is playing some TV trope games by having two girls at the same party and she is the one who helps them out in the corner and she's absolutely adorable and I managed to get her on my interview to mention that she may or may not be, probably will be, uh, coming back for Community Series 5 which is of course being hemmed by Mr Dan Harmon once more
0: Yes, which is a very, very good thing she was, uh, yeah, her character and that was fantastic funniest moment of the series so far I'm watching it at the moment. Well, can the next film possibly match up? Well, maybe, because Philomena, for it is that film, uh, stars Judy Dench as the titular little old Irish lady who enlists the help of m- journalist Martin Sixsmith, who's played by Steve Coogan, um, to help her find the son that she was forced to give up for adoption nearly 50 years before. Um, now I'm going to talk about this one because I'm Irish and therefore I bagsy it Um, (laughs) this is if you've seen uh, the Magdalene sisters a few years ago then this will on some level be on kind of familiar ground because uh, Judy Dench 50 years before was an unwed mother in very Catholic very backwards 1950s Ireland and she was basically put in one of these Magdalene homes where she was forced to work in the laundry every day given one hour a day to spend with her baby um, and the rest of the time she had to work um, to supposedly pay off the, the debt incurred by, by being there and giving birth um, and then they adopted her son out from under her and basically coerced her into signing over the adoption papers which she did essentially out of you, you learn in the film self, self-loathing and a feeling that she deserved to be punished for her sin and um, and she's had no contact since and the nuns have been extremely un- unhelpful in, you know, trying to put her back in contact. Apparently all the records were destroyed in a fire. So uh, she enlists uh, Steve Coogan's character, Martin Smith, obviously the real journalist. Um, this is a true story. I think it's worth worth making clear. And they they go off and try and find this son and find what happened to him. And, and And she's kind of terrified the whole time. What if he doesn't want her? You know, what if he blames her for giving him up? What if he doesn't think about her at all? What if he is, you know... Has, has died or, or something dreadful has happened to him uh, but they still sort of set off on this on this journey and it's this mismatched kind of buddy comedy no it's not a buddy comedy There there is a buddy element to it because they're very it's a bit of a road movie it is a bit of a road movie yes um, and there is this this sense that you know, Philomena's, she's she's like my granny and every other little old lady I know. You know, she reads Mills and Boone romances and gets awfully excited by them and thinks they're wonderful and, and you know, wears a lot of kind of soft pink colours and, and just is very excited by everything new that she's seeing. And Martin Sixsmith is pretty much like every journalist i know and is incredibly cynical and and a bit twisted and uh and thinks he's a bit above doing this human interest or at least in the film i think actually the real story he's a little bit nicer and they actually made him less sympathetic in the film with his consent i should make clear uh steve coogan also wrote it so he was able to you know really give him a uh, give him a character and give him an arc um but honestly it it doesn't go quite where you think it's going to go always and uh and it it's, it manages not to just be a human interest or it manages to, get, to rise kind of above that.
2: It's genuinely, again, this weekend for me has yeah. some of the best films I've seen so far this year. I love this film, I... This is set in the early 2000s. And I got a kick out of seeing the poor props manager who had to get every single thing right. There Ouch. couldn't be, you know, a, a flash MacBook Air. It had to be a chunky twist the handle on the side and the computer starts up. Yeah. And when they look on this uh, internet page and it loads, <laughs> it goes... It doesn't make the noise, but it does, it does come down. Anyway, so that's just me being weird. But there is a certain amount of Steve Coogan coming across as Steve Coogan. Like, he no matter how he acts be it in 24 Hour Party People or obviously you know Alan Partridge there's the Coogan about him he doesn't totally embody his characters whether they're real or not but that being said he fits in very well and the 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 butting heads or the learning to love each other or hate each other aspect between these two is just so enjoyable and Mm. Judy Dench has some of the best lines uh, in the film and she delivers them so well I mean I don't know whether her her, accent's pretty flawless there you go Uh, it's it's a really funny film and it's also emotionally very affecting. What I couldn't believe were certain things that happened that actually happened. There are moments in this film where you go, that can't, no surely not. And Steve Coogan has said there have been some dramatic you know, timing changes mm. so on and so forth. But really this story is is incredible.
0: I mean we we had him in for a web chat yesterday and you can read that transcript on the website but he actually he was asked sort of what What liberties they'd taken and how they'd changed the story for the screen and he said for example one of the things that they'd done is made the nuns they'd actually sort of taken out some of the things that the nuns actually said because they thought it would make them just so unsympathetic that no one would believe it Um, and honestly seeing what's still there that must have been pretty unsympathetic indeed because um yeah they, they say some astonishingly horrible things um, and and thank goodness that filmina is there and is a, is a little bit of a, a sort of shining light in comparison
2: if you're wondering whether this is going to be getting BAFTA attention wonder no more it will I guarantee you that uh, I don't know whether you can give Dame Judy another Damehood but uh, <laughs> double Dame double, double Dame I, I guess she I, she'll get I'm sure a nod but I feel like she's been given so many awards that she won't be given another BAFTA will she?
0: you never know I you wouldn't rule know. it out certainly we should also mention uh, Stephen Frears directed this with a very light hand it's, it's very well put together and it got five stars that is wow. a two five star film one four star film week this is a heck of a week to go to the cinema people also out this week uh, there's Milius which is a documentary on the filmmaker and professional character John Milius uh, that also got four and there's a Chilean drama called Gloria about a love affair between older people which also got four. What a week. And then there's drinking buddies with uh, Jake Johnson and Olivia Wilde as drinking buddies. Uh, And that only got two, just really harshing our mellow, which was a bit of a shame. Still, it's a hell of a week, so do go to the cinema. But don't go just yet, because we still have one more interview, and it features the chocolatey tones and perfect enunciation of the man who reduces Tumblr to its knees just by existing. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is Tom Hiddleston right now. The once and future Loki. Okay, the... Thrice and future Loki, sat down with myself and Chris Hewitt to discuss Thor, the wild popularity of his character, and do a few impressions. Here you go.
5: Uh, we're delighted to be joined on the Emperor podcast by Mr. Tom Hiddleston, aka Loki, Okay, how do we know it's you, first of all? <laughs>
8: how we, what, what can I do to prove that it's I'm me? I have absolutely <laughs> no idea, driver's license, yeah. you can make a donation Postport. in cash, <laughs> yeah.
5: I will yeah. accept that. I spoke to Kevin Feige earlier on, Tom, and he said that tomorrow... Uh, You're recording the commentary for Thor The Dark World.
8: I am. I'm very excited about it. Kevin, have you prepared? No, I'm, tonight I'm gonna I'm gonna watch the film again and, and have a th- just have a think about things like interesting things I could say. <laughs>
0: this is the, this is the time to make up the anecdotes that didn't really happen, right? Yeah, there are so
8: many. To be honest, I'm actually worried I will talk too much, <laughs> and um, I'll be I'll be telling some boring anecdote about some boring detail and miss, and then it'll be I'll be talking over a really exciting section of the film, and it'll just be a commentary about. Um, The uh, about the sort of shoulder pieces on Loki's costume or something, (laughs) which nobody wants to listen to.
5: Whereas Kevin's basically he's going he's going to announce all the Phase Three films and you just keep talking over that. And (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Do you pre-plan with Kevin what you are going to say, what areas you are going
8: to talk about before you? No, we haven't we haven't talked about it at all. Actually, I don't know if he's done a commentary. I don't know if he has.
0: I don't remember one.
5: Do you know? I don't. I don't. I should remember these things, but uh, as far as I am aware, this may be. No, I am sure it's not his first commentary, but uh, no yeah it'll be it'll be a strange experience but uh, speaking of strange experiences, i imagine this junket has been one long string of surreal never before experienced moments for you. yeah
8: yeah it has been amazing i've i 've been on the road um for about uh two and a half weeks now i think, and the bus hasn 't quite stopped yet <laughs> um, uh but it's been i mean, i 've been to countries i've never been to i, I went to um Beijing and in in China Um, and then we went to Korea before that we went to Sydney only my second time in Australia and it's it's amazing to go with this film because it's it's obviously my third go-around and and honestly um, in the space of whatever it is three years to see how these characters have been taken to the heart of audiences all over the world is mind-blowing truly because you know you just you're putting one foot in front of the other and suddenly you know, there's a whole fan base in in China and and uh, Korea. Like I was, you know, it's been bananas, bonkers, mad.
0: Um, what is it about Loki that's connected to this extent? Because he, he, I mean, there was a line somewhere I read it that he's uh, lethally resentful. You know, he's he's really like he's. In many, many ways, a really bad person, but yes, everybody yes, loves yes. him more so maybe than than the heroes. I
8: don't know about that. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Apart from, I sort of have tried to think about um, this. That he is a showman, you know. In in Tony Stark's words, he's in Avengers. He is a full tilt diva. <laughs> <laughs> His moniker is the God of Mischief. There's something very compelling about about mischief you know, if you look up mischief in the english dictionary one of the first entries is an inclination to playfulness so so um so on top of all of his sort of villainy and his jealousy and his anger and hatred and bitterness and and his grief-stricken broken heart is this um inclination to play and a kind of a, a delight in chaos and, and and so the idea that it's my job to turn up and have a really good time i hope is something that's kind of in, engaging in a way I, I suppose it's always fun to ha- to watch people have a good time and maybe that's it i don't know what do you think guys
5: it's interesting because i think we're in the age of the anti-hero at the moment there's mm. been so much written over the last few weeks about walter white and right. breaking bad and people just seem to love yeah. That character, as we said with Loki, and the idea of watching a good man break bad—that's it—and seeing how far he can plumb the depths of evil, and then is there a shred of redemption? I think there's a little bit of that within Loki, as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, how truly evil
8: is he, really? I mean, and exactly, and he and he didn't start evil. He started as a prince, um, and um, and it's it's all a sort of it, it's about tracking his descent into supervillainy in a way. It's funny, I once, I don't know if I ever said this, but I once had a, a conversation with Anthony Hopkins about this on the first film. And um, he, we were just talking about bad guys and, and how, what fun it is to play the bad guy as an actor. And he said, you know, it's very interesting. Um, um, all my life I've played um, lots of different parts and, and um, you know, played heroes and princes and kings and queens and many poets and, and uh, warriors and all sorts of things. And people stop me in the street and all I want to talk about is one man. <laughs> who do you think that man is? And I was like, I know who that man is. And it's Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. And, and he has an interesting theory about dark characters, bad guys in, in cinema, it, it, which is that in our lives, we want our lives to be nice. We want, we want our lives to be full of, of, of laughter and joy and family and friendship and fun. And, uh, and then something happens when we all sit in a dark room and the lights go down and we kind of watch the screen and we're compelled by dark characters. Um, and that is—I mean—there's a theory of of like interesting characters in cinema. It's one to—it's an interesting one to explore for me. I don't know where Loki sits on that line, but um,
0: it's kind of a catharsis, maybe I guess, in terms of yeah, our own dark side. Yeah,
8: a, a, a excavation. I think yeah. a, a, some kind of excavation of human nature and um, and uh, our darkest instincts. But Loki, I think it's part Loki's playfulness is what's so fun about him—is that he's always having a good time.
0: And there's a really interesting line, this is at the very, very beginning of the film, so not a spoiler, where, you know, Odin confronts him about what he's done and is trying to get him to kind of accept punishment. And he's, yeah. he kind of points out, well, I did what you did. I went down there as a god. That's it. So yeah, yeah. who are you to tell me I was wrong?
8: Yeah, it's, he has a point. He always has a point. He's smart and intelligent. And he's playing some eternal game of chess with Odin, I think. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's not over yet. <laughs> shall we just say it's um, it's him? You know, somebody may be in check. It's not quite checkmate. <laughs> we'll get
5: onto that later on in okay. the, uh, in the uh, spoiler section of the podcast. But do you think across three films that we have seen the true
8: Loki? I don't know. That's the thing. Is I always ask that like Chris and I were kind of perpetually um, asking this question: What does he want? What does Loki want? Chris wanted to know. He's just like, you know, what what does he want? Like, does he want to be king? Does he want to be does he want to be in the family does he want to be like what actually does he want and i think that's a question which conti- i don't know if i know the answer to entirely is is does he want to win the game or is it the game itself that he that it gives him a kind of a raison d'etre there are moments i think because he's such a he's such a, a brilliant strategist and he's such a a sharp poker player you know he never reveals his true hand um and there aren't but there are moments i think across the three films where you do see the truth you Mm. see some kind of authentic feeling from him um once in ken browner's film where he finds out that his whole oh yeah that's life has been a lie scene with odin scene with odin which i which i i really depend upon actually as a kind of cornerstone of my performance because i know that it's there um and i know that it worked and and it really kind of suddenly his whole life fell apart and um and the sky fell in and, and he had to kind of, he was left reeling from that revelation. And then I think there is a scene in this film where where Thor calls him on it and says enough, no more tricks, no more illusions, show me yourself. And he does. I don't want to reveal when that is, but it's. Uh, I, I'm really pleased with that scene. Mm-hmm.
0: There's also the line in this film: uh, "Satisfaction is not in my nature." Indeed, that's which, it. Which you know just seems right. It just seems like yeah, he's always going to be searching for something more, no matter what he gets. Yeah, there's it's, always going to be something. Uncomfortable. It's
8: a great line, that one. Um, and I remember thinking about it as I as I was learning it, thinking maybe that's the answer. Maybe you know
5: because it is. I mean, I think we spoke about this the other day as well. But um, it is such a unique opportunity for yourself and Chris. Yeah. I cannot think of uh, another actor or other actors who've had this experience of three films, three major films, mm. in three years, playing the same characters evolving mm. across the three films. And Chris is obviously going to go on to a fourth in, in four years. I know, it's Avengers amazing. Too. The stamina uh, required just to do that <laughs>
8: his, uh, and do everything else he's been doing in between.
5: But it, it, what's also amazing is that Logie keeps throwing up new things for you, I, I, I guess. Is there something that even in this movie that surprised you about him and surprised you about the character?
8: Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it was... It was um, Wanting to hold on to so many They wanted to hold on to the sense of fun I had in Avengers and, ex- and expand that. And also, in a way, reverse the arc of the character. Um, because he's always defined himself in opposition. So he's always... Thor has always been offering an olive branch. Come back. We forgive you. Come back. And it's Loki's kind of arrogant privilege to say, No, I still hate you. And um, in this film, I think nobody's offering the olive branch. Mm. He's he's in prison. Um condemned to be written out of history for eternity um forgotten unseen unheard and haunted by his demons that you got the you have to change at that point um so that surprised me is, is is uh is how far how far further down does he go before he hits rock bottom is there one for him and could he come back up
0: is he an exercise in reverse psychology? Possibly. Not, you know, yeah. If he isn't being offered the olive branch, then he's maybe... <laughs> yeah,
8: maybe, yeah. He's like, okay, 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 it's time for me to have... Okay, I'm good now. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs>
5: um, so we, uh, yeah. we see
8: Loki an awful lot in the, uh, in the dungeon. Like
5: mm. Hannibal Lecter in, yeah. in in this movie, um, and it does strike me as a very very as a pitiful existence for the rest of his days. This this man could live for another four, five thousand years yeah. in a, a single room with only a couple of books to keep yeah. in
8: company. Yeah, yeah, it's not to be sniffed at. No. Eternity. Yeah. Um, there's a wonderful sketch by Rowan Atkinson from the late '80s where he plays the devil, and he says, uh, "Welcome to." Uh, welcome to my my house. This is hell. And you're all here for eternity, which I hardly need tell you is a heck of a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, I think Loki's thought about that a bit, you know, possibly not, not hard enough. Um, and, um, I don't know what, quite what he's planning to, how he's planning to spend his time, but, um, I don't know to. We'll both come to that in the spoilery. We'll come to that yeah. We'll, we'll come to, we'll
5: later. To that yeah, right. yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> just on a slightly wider note, you've talked about the importance of music getting into the character. Um, you think you said you listened to Bon and Bon Iver when Bon Iver when getting sort of ready to play Loki. That, yeah, and no, that, right? that
8: was just actually that they was it just coincidence? Bon, yeah, Bon Iver. He, he they released their album in the summer that we were made Avengers, oh, okay. and it, it just was it was. Um, very hot in New Mexico, and, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was very calming as a, as an influence. But yeah, I do I do listen to music a lot. And music is a is a key for for me for tone. It's like mm-hmm. trying to trying to find a tone. Um, I mean, it's it's a shortcut to emotion. All music is, and um, if you're whatever you, whatever you know, if you're playing a particular scene, um, um, sometimes music can be really helpful. I remember there was a, there was, a, there, was a, there was a track by. Um, Zack hempsey called mind heist which i think is the the um the track that uh the, the very now very famous trailer for chris nolan's inception was cut to and and hands Zimmer's score sounds rather like it but it isn't actually that track there's a big drum and some dr- and some drone and it sounds incredibly dramatic and i listened to that a lot while making this film just to you know because you get up in the morning it's an it's a sort of standard october wednesday and you drive into Shepperton and it all feels very normal, and you have to elevate yourself to 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 where like it's about gods and monsters, and somehow that soundscape I found very helpful.
0: So it wasn't get lucky actually.
8: Can I play it through the mic? Sure. <laughs> it's the old um, people will recognise it from the Inception trailer. Hang on, Mind Heist. Uh, oh, it was ju- it was just left on this. We'll-
2: this is quite lucky. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh,
8: that's in Loki's dreams. Um, Welcome to the Jungle by Guns N' Roses. Hang on, mind highest. Where is it?
5: Loki's playlist would be quite
8: something. <laughs> I imagine. Yeah. I, I, as I said, Full Tilt Diva. Absolutely. He's Here we go. The, he's
5: reading the book at one point. I wonder this what book it? he's reading. Oh.
8: Can you hear that? Yep. That's like it, I always think that's his mind like ticking over, <laughs> and then the drums come in right about yeah. Yeah. if you did you'd be the fool I always took you for this <laughs> is like Lucky Live
5: this is amazing <laughs> you, could, you could be go back at Comic Con yeah. it's like Lucky yeah. Palooza you could go around <laughs> Lucky Berry you could do yeah. all sorts of things you could do all sorts of yeah. things that's amazing trust my rage <laughs> yeah. so that helps more than say for example putting the hair on or having the costume or
8: um, no, the, all of that helps, to yeah. be honest. Like, um, it, it's um, the, the costume, the makeup. It's it's an amazing thing because cause it's, it's like a mask, yeah? um, the costume and the whole look of him. And after two hours of going through the works, so, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror. And I think that is a different person. It's a different silhouette. And even my own smile doesn't look like a, it doesn't look as... I hope benign as my <laughs> own smile, it just looks a bit more menacing. And um, so that's helpful. And even, but that's the, fun, I mean, genuinely the fun of acting is, is the specifics of shape-shifting and talking about the color of his face and 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 if there are bags under his eyes, you know, talking with makeup artists about about certain colors, white, pink, purple, like to make his eyes bloodshot or, or um, you know, just playing with face shapes is really interesting just mm. as a, as one way in talking about an, a character's external mm. mask.
5: Oh well, wow. did you uh, did you miss the staff? Did you miss the helmet this time? The horns,
8: <laughs> the, my horns. Um, yeah. It's funny. It's funny the, the thing about the horns because I I um, I feel like there's only one particular way of being in, in when I'm wearing the horns. It's they're so theatrical. They're so they're so statuesque that in a way the scenes have to be quite grand. When he's when he's in them, and it because it cuts off so much of my face, I have to do so much acting from within inside it because because a lot of it is a lot of my face is covered. So and it gets very hot in there. So I, I wouldn't say I missed them, <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're there in in spirit, uh, shall okay. we say?
5: Okay.
0: <laughs> and he has a massive. Um, uh, locations I guess this time. I mean shooting on a volcano in Iceland that's that was going ama- help that just, was you know, amazing feel alien right yeah
8: it was it was something to... i mean the fact that we were in Iceland was incredible because this is you know these characters have been in popular consciousness for thousands of years and you can walk down the street in Reykjavik and uh, the great thrill is people are still called thor they go hello Hi. i am thor and you go that's amazing um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and they are called sort of like um Olaf Son, you know, like the son of Olaf, or yes. or um, whatever it is, Fríka's daughter, the daughter of Frigga. and you go, well, maybe not that specific name, but um, there's a cafe Loki, and you can go and get a, cu- a cup of coffee, and I loved all that stuff. But but being on a, being on a volcano in Iceland, um, staring out at a desert of black sand, and and uh, and actually one morning the whole we got up very early, and the whole uh, landscape was was kind of had been iced in snow. Wow. It looked like another world. It looked like the dark world. It was extraordinary. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Beats
5: working against Green Screen. It I certainly does. Yeah, yeah. Um, I have I have one thought about Loki's plans in Avengers. What would have happened had he won? Because he had essentially made the deal with the devil, with Thanos, to, yeah. to, to take over Earth. Good but question. The, simply Thanos would have uh, cashed his chips in at some point.
8: Yeah, that's a really... I mean, you have to wonder, like, how much do you trust Thanos to, uh, to keep his end of the bargain? Yeah. Um, I guess the deal was um, Loki could use the Tesseract to take over the Earth to become its king. Then he'd hand the Tesseract back, and the rest of the universe would be um, Thanos' playground. Yeah. Um, I don't know. You have to wonder what a what a, a Loki-led New York City would look like. Um a lot more welcome to the jungle, I think. <laughs> like, but it does
5: strike me that Loki doesn't seem to be the greatest long-term planner. No. He's very capricious yes. in, the, in, in the moment. Yeah. So it's, it's,
8: yeah, I mean but that goes all the way back to like Stan and Jack, you know, he's just he just wants to win now. And or, or if he doesn't want to win, he just wants everyone else to lose but right now. <laughs> um and um, I I wonder and I do wonder he almost the thing is he almost wins um, yes if it wasn't for um, those pesky kids the sacrificial (laughs) qualities of Tony Stark and uh, (laughs) the jolly green giant otherwise known as yes the Hulk yeah absolutely which
5: is um, I think most people's favourite moment from the Avengers, yeah, or Avengers Assemble, if you want to call it that. Um, <laughs> it's a sore point with me, but <laughs> yeah, good. It should be. Um, I imagine this is something that's referenced to you more often than most moments. Uh, the, the puny god sequence being smashed yeah. repeatedly by th- it's by that
8: people. one, and and. Um my Chaucerian insult to Scarlett Johansson, <laughs> 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 which sometimes people shout at me in the street. Um, oh, that's nice. It's fun, yeah. yeah. But it, you know, that, that was a great moment too. But the, the the um, I remember when I first read the uh, the Hulk smash, Hulk smash Loki. It was it was at the end of a, an amazing screenplay. I mean, the the film you saw was the film that Joss Whedon wrote. It was so complete, so tight. Um, and such a riot to read ne- never mind make and i and after all of this kind of like sort of tyrannical fascism and and sort of and um megalomania to to be to have the rug pulled out so beautifully from under his feet just just to be hulk smashed is uh, <laughs> was so funny like a wet fish um <laughs> and, uh, and 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 making that moment took about 3 days cuz cause, cause, uh it was just me it wasn't you know mark Ruffalo was um he had done all of his of his um um what they call motion capture work in, in in a different studio with um um industrial light and magic and and so it was just me and and Joss on set and i was jumping into these holes that had been dug out by the production designer uh, it was absurd <laughs> <laughs> and we made each other laugh and and um and it, i was so but the, the real thrill was when i first saw it with the crowd and people stood up and applauded <laughs> and mm. threw their caps in the air and, and um, that was when I knew it was it really worked
5: My favourite thing about that sequence is the noise that Lucky makes afterwards <laughs>
8: <laughs> Pretty much that one, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: Joss actually said he doesn't think he'll ever write a moment as pleasing as that was
8: It is so just, pleasing, yeah. yeah He just deserves it <laughs>
5: So That's, bad yeah. he really
0: and, does.
8: You know Especially if we are calling him a dull creature <laughs> beforehand. <laughs> yeah.
5: Undress, my opponent, at your peril.
0: Now, if you want more about Thor The Dark World, do remember that we have recorded a spoiler podcast to stand alongside this one, and it has much more spoilery questions and answers from Feige, Taylor, Hiddleston, and ourselves. Uh, In a gesture of transatlantic friendship and goodwill, we are putting that online on Monday, November 11th. So look out for it then after the US release and get ready for it to answer all your Thor-related questions. So that's it for this week's Empire podcast in association with Beyond Two Souls. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by the great Alfonso Cuarón to talk about Gravity, the film that's received so much well-deserved praise around the world that its ego should be in orbit right now. Until then, it's goodbye from James. Farewell. Is that more Viking? Old Norse. Okay, goodbye from Phil. Au revoir. (laughs) Goodbye from Ali. Goodbye now, and farewell from me. I'm off to learn some astrophysics in the hopes of finding a hunky boyfriend from another dimension.
2: Now it's time for the Science Bit of the Empire podcast, where Ali, the editor, that's me, by the way, uh, tells you a bit more about our sponsor, Beyond Two Souls. A psychological action thriller, Beyond Two Souls features a brand new game engine, a compelling original story, and, as mentioned previously in the podcast, a top notch Hollywood cast in the form of Ellen Page and Willem Dafoe. It's also got a score by Hans Zimmer. This makes it a sophisticated, technologically advanced, immersive gaming experience only on PlayStation 3. In it, you'll live the extraordinary life of Jodie Holmes, played by Page, a young woman who possesses supernatural powers through a psychic to an invisible entity known only as Aiden. Experience the most striking moments of Jodie's life as your actions and decisions determine her fate, traversing the globe with her as she faces incredible challenges against the backdrop of emotionally charged events never before seen in a video game. Beyond Your Souls is out now, so you can buy it wherever you like, whenever you like. Thank you for listening to this little bit of blurb at the end of the podcast. It is gratefully appreciated. And please do enjoy the rest of your week. Goodbye.